My name is Angie Alstrom, mother of four, Harry Potter fan for life, and owner of Angie Alstrom Life Coaching. This is Creating Happy, a podcast for people of faith to remember who they are and what they are capable of, even with depression. Every week, you will learn amazingly effective strategies for creating the life you've always wanted, regardless of your circumstances. All right, so... I want to welcome to the podcast today, my brother, Luke Larson. Um, He's totally qualified to be here. He's not just here because of family. (laughs) 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 He's a husband and father of four kids. He is a business owner. He is a neuro-linguistic programming master practitioner, certified hypnotherapist, certified cognitive be cognitive behavioral therapist and a certified life coach. And those three last certifications are from Ecology by Kane Ramsey. You also have multiple, scler- <laughs> multiple sclerosis, <laughs> which is an autoimmune disease that attacks the central nervous system. For those of you who don't know, basically affects the brain and spinal cord and causes numbness from the waist down. Um, and your particular type of MS, ha- it gets progressively worse, right? Yeah. So it's, uh, thank you, by the way, that was a great intro. <laughs> um, so yeah, to answer that question, MS, you know, there are a few different types. Mine is uh, primary progressive, which means that over time, it's just going to get worse and worse, which is different than uh, remitting and relapsing where uh it gets, you have a a flare up and then you heal from that and get ready for your next flare up. Uh, Multiple sclerosis, which I can't believe that they made it such a difficult word for people that have multiple sclerosis (laughs) because it it attacks our central nervous system, which is also our motor skills. So um, I'm still not very good at saying multiple sclerosis, even though I say it all the time. (laughs) Uh, but just to clarify that because it attacks the, because it attacks the central nervous system, I mean, the symptoms could be all over the board. So not everybody that has multiple sclerosis is going to have numbness or tingling. They may have other symptoms as well. Uh, mine is most notably numbness and, uh, you know, uh, yeah, numbness because, uh, it's probably the earliest symptom I can think of having, you know, in middle school or junior high, I remember having numbness in my legs um, and even in my left arm. I remember, I remember not being able to use my left arm for a while. Everybody treated me like I was crazy. Um, But, you know, now that I look back on that now, I go, oh, gee, that was probably MS. (laughs) Also, a little bit more about Luke is that he is a marathon runner. I've run two marathons. I've run a half marathon. I've run uh, Ragnar, which is a uh, 24-hour run that you do in teams. But yeah, so I've I've done my fair share of running. Yeah, I saw this meme once that was, or I think it was a meme that was like, people who run marathons, they know they don't have to, right? <laughs> <laughs> We do know that. We do know that, but there's a payoff for running it. And so we just keep doing it or trying to do it at least. All right. Well, could you just tell us um, a little bit about how you came to know you had MS and kind Mm -hmm. of how it changed your life? Yeah. Uh, So I had uh, run a couple marathons. The last marathon that I ran was the Ogden Marathon. And that was in 2013, 14, one of those years. (laughs) And uh, I had decided that I wanted to train for another one. My goal was to get to Boston. And so I was hoping that when I ran the Ogden Marathon that I would get uh, probably three and a half hours or, uh, or excuse me, two and a half hours or, um, you know, closer to that two hour mark, be able to finish a marathon that quickly. And um, anyway, the Ogden Marathon went such that I came in uh, right at three hours. And so I was really disappointed that I didn't run it as well as I thought I was going to and wanted to train for another one. So I went out onto our treadmill because it was uh, 
December when I decided I wanted to start training again. I went out to our treadmill in the garage, started running, and I got a uh, just a pain in my back, which is not unusual for me. I deal with back pain all the time. And uh, this time I couldn't get my uh, right foot to, to pick up. I could get my leg to pick up, but my foot itself wouldn't pick up. They call it drop leg or drop foot uh, is what I came to find out. And so I figured it was just a back issue. So I took some time off and uh, went back to training, same thing. And then my balance started to really go. Uh, I had difficulty walking uh, and, uh, you know, was falling quite a bit, tripping over lots of things and just had a real hard time of, of walking, you know. And so finally, um, I called the doctor and, and gave, him the, gave him the rundown, uh, told him that I was dealing with some numbness. And, uh, you know, it took a year. Uh, and three, I'm trying to make sure that I'm telling this right, three different uh, neurologists to finally say, this is multiple sclerosis. Um, I can't remember how many doctor's appointments I went to, but I did a ton of tests. I did, ended up doing a spinal tap, uh, like three or four MRIs. Usually when I go, I have to get an MRI at least once a year. And I usually sit in that MRI for about an hour to an hour and a half. And um, so I'd done a bunch of those MRIs and uh, <laughs> I can't even remember all the tests. There are a lot of them. Um, and then finally, uh, they sent me to a specialist down in Seattle and she said, without a doubt, it's MS. And so um, the, the way that it impacted me the most um, was, you know, I had to, uh, and in the moment I felt like I had to give up running um, because MS had attacked my motor skills. So when I talk about not having balance and not being able to walk, um, it was real serious. Um, I would get out of bed and usually fall onto the bed two or three times trying to make the corner around the bed. Um, going down the hallway, I had to lean against one wall to make sure I could get down the hallway. Um, I started walking with uh, you know, some canes or walking sticks and things like that just to make sure that I could keep my balance. Um, so that was the biggest thing. Uh, of course, numbness, and I kind of, I hate the fact that I downplay the numbness because it is serious, but I downplay it because it's kind of normal for me, if I can say that. I've just dealt with it so much. It's just one of those things that I deal with. Um, and I have memories of being numb in, like I said, middle school, high school, and beyond. Um, so unfortunately, that one doesn't, doesn't, mess with me too much because I've, or disrupt my life that much just because I'm used to it. It's a lot of guessing gaming and you get used to it. Um, not that you should get used to it, but you do, you get used to it. <laughs> uh, the other, the other thing that was a major, major factor that I don't think gets enough attention is the fatigue that deals with MS. So your body is constantly with MS, your body is constantly working against itself. So it's, my immune system is constantly attacking my body and also constantly trying to heal. And so even when I'm sitting down, I'm at work. And the fatigue part of it is that um, all of a sudden you've just got nothing left. It doesn't slowly wind down. Like you look at your cell phone and you can see the percentages go down throughout the day on your battery power. When it comes to this fatigue, you can go from 100% to zero and just a snap of the finger, you know? I remember, uh, I don't deal with it so much anymore. I do, you know, get fatigue still, but, you know, there were times where I would come home from work and I would sit down and I was out, just out like a light. And there's kids playing and jumping on me and I was out. And uh, there were even times that I fell asleep at stoplights. You know, not because I wasn't getting sleep, but, you know, I'd pull up to a stoplight and be there for a second or two. I'd fall asleep <laughs> and uh, I'd get, you know, I'd get honked at and I'd wake up and I'd drive or I'd, I'd feel the car move and I'd wake up and be startled. And 
start moving or driving, you know? And, um, so those were the biggest, uh, the biggest impacts that I think uh, MS had on my life with that. Um, you know, it's, I always tell people I had to come to grips with saying goodbye to my old self. Like I had to mourn my old self dying, I guess is a, is a, is a way to say it. Um, because I had to come to grips with, I wasn't going to be able to do things the way that I used to. I, I not hundred percent sure, but I kind of liken it to someone who's just been in a big accident, you know, and all of a sudden they, they don't come out of that car accident the same way that they went into it, whether that's paralysis or PTSD or, or whatever it is. Um, they just don't come out of it the same way. Okay. So, um, so obviously changed your sports activity, right? You weren't running anymore. Um, and I know you're back into it now and we'll get more into that later. How did it kind of affect home life? What was, what was going on there? Well, I put a lot on my wife, right? I put a lot on Susanna because, um, I just couldn't be counted on, uh, for a lot of things all of a sudden, you know, like when we went to go drive anywhere, I was always the driver. Like when we'd make long hauls, short trips, whatever, I was always the driver. Um, but we just couldn't count on me doing that anymore because the other thing that I didn't mention is that I have muscle spasms and most of the time they're in my leg. And so when you're driving and your foot is on a gas pedal and you have a muscle spasm, you go faster <laughs> or you stop abruptly or, or whatever. And so I couldn't be trusted to do that. And then when it comes to even just the, the family life, even if we're just at home, you know, the fatigue level was like, I can't help out tonight. I'm going to bed and I would go fall asleep or, you know, unfortunately it comes with a lot of mood swings. All of a sudden I just be angry, um, which isn't fair to anybody. Uh, but you know, it, it, it ended up being that Susanna just had to take on a lot more, you know, almost, I, I, I hesitate to say, you know, single parent, cause I was there still in some capacity, but she moved closer to that than she ever had to. So, yeah, I can yeah, clearly like that was probably a really difficult transition. So um, I know that that was kind of the beginning for you of this journey you went on with all of your certification th and things. Um, can you tell us a little bit about why you started learning about the brain and about self-help and uh, the path that you took, basically? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I could talk days about that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> my my self-help and all that started when I was like 21, 22. Um, someone put a bug in my brain about uh, owning a business, you know, being your own, uh, your own man, your own boss, your own whatever you want to say. Like, I, I remember that all the different like <clears throat> pyramid schemes you'd come home with. <laughs> <laughs> there you, how dare you call them pyramid schemes? I'm just no, joking. I did, I'm just... you know, uh, someone put it in my head, this idea of being an entrepreneur. And so um, I loved that idea of being in control of your own life, of your own destiny. And so I did, as a part of that, I did join a bunch of companies, <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> you name it, I've probably done it. And, uh, but I was just so, I just loved this idea of being in control of my own life. And with that, you get, you get told no a lot. And so you got to learn how to deal with no's. And so I was looking into self-help on that. I'm like, how do I be positive in a negative environment where, you know, I'm going to get 99 no's before I get the one yes type of For thing. For sure. Absolutely. And, um, you know, the other thing when it comes to owning your business is that <clears throat> it's kind of a lonely world. When you, when you decide that you're going to go out, you're going to start your own company, you're going to be your own boss, you throw yourself out there on an island all by yourself. And 
uh, you will get people that because they love you will come out and say, Hey, are you sure about that? <laughs> I, why not get a real job and with some security and with a steady paycheck um, and all those things. And so, I mean, they're doing it out of love, but it's really just beating you down, you know? Yeah. And so I got into it because of that. But because I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis, um, you know, and we had had some really difficult births. Um, our kids did not come easy. Uh, you know, I don't know how much detail you want on this, but our kids didn't come easy. Uh, you know, two of our kids wound up in the NICU. Um, one of our kids, I thought I lost Susanna. I thought she was gone. Um, and so our kids didn't come easy. And then I lost my best friend unexpectedly. He took a nap and didn't wake up from it. And I just snapped is probably the best way to put it. And this and, all happened like in a, in a matter of a month, like within the same month, right? With, yeah. With so, your little one and then, and Sue's and. Yeah. Yeah. You're absolutely right. So my youngest was in the NICU and uh, transferred to, uh, to a hospital that was like fair distance away from us. So it was just about an hour away from us. Um, and she ended up spending a couple of weeks there. But, you know, she'd only been in the NICU five days when I got a phone call um, informing me that my friend had passed away. And we, we live in Washington now. My friend lived in, in Utah. And so I left for the funeral um, and I left a wife and a baby in the NICU <laughs> to go to the funeral. And, you know, it's just, it's just stress upon stress. And I say that I snapped because um, I stopped being the person that I was. You know, I had gotten to the point in my life where it was like, I do hard things. Like it's not, um, it was never a question on whether or not hard things were going to come and whether I was going to be able to handle them. My life was just hard, period. You know, underline it, life is hard. Life is a struggle. And I do hard, I, I struggle and I'm good at it, you know? <laughs> but when I found out that my friend had passed away, that was the end of it. I had finally, I'd finally picked up the straw that broke the camel's back, right? I finally hit my breaking point. And it was an interesting thing because <clears throat> not only did I, probably spend too much time, um, uh, maybe that's not fair to say, beating myself up. I spent too much time beating myself up about not spending more time um, with my friend, but I started thinking about all of the failures that I have had in life, you know? Because uh, one's not bad enough, we've got to do them all. Exactly. Yeah. And, and <laughs> And people that, you know, that understand depression and anxiety and all these fun things, uh, they get that. They don't, you don't get to just ones or twosies, you get them all, right? Mm -hmm. They all come at once. They're, they're part of a, a gang. And when you mess with one bean, you get the whole enchilada. And so um, I, I started doing that, which was just uncharacteristic of me, you know, because up until then, it was just like, yeah, here's the next challenge type of thing. Um, so I snapped, I got depressed, I got anxious, um, and, you know, started having suicidal thoughts. And I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say tendencies so much, um, but I started uh, thinking about suicide seriously and, um, just that it was probably a, not a bad option anymore. Like it probably made sense um, because not only could I not handle what I was dealing with, but I was dragging everybody else down around me type of thing, right? So it's better if I'm just not here so that I stop dragging those other people down. And the part that frustrated me 
quite a bit during during all of this is that I had had 10, 12 years of studying on the power of positive thinking and overcoming obstacles and you name it. I had all of this background and all of this knowledge that I should have been able to lean on um, to, to buoy me up, to strengthen me during this crisis. Um, not only that, but I'm Christian. And so I, I believe that there is help for us even beyond this world. And because I was having a crisis of my faith, like that made me feel terrible. And so, you know, just all of this stuff just wasn't helping me like it had in the past when it should have been. And that was really frustrating to me. So I, I dove in a little bit more and um, I've never really been a big fan of psychology uh, because I just saw it as a way for people to explain the way that they were and not so much a way for them to change. And that was just a perception that I had, right? Right or wrong, that was the perception that I had is that psychology in itself is just to explain why things are wrong with people and not how to get better from it, right? Yeah. Um, but I'd hit the point where I obviously wasn't gonna do it on my own. And uh, I talked to my doctor, ended up taking medication, antidepressants and getting a counselor to help me out. Um, and the one thing that I'll say about antidepressants is that, man, they take a long time to get right. And they take a long time to even start working how they're supposed to be working. At least that was my experience. Mine too. And, and then you find something that works and then your hormones change. <laughs> well, luckily I don't have to deal with the hormone part. <laughs> I can only imagine that that's a complete nightmare. Um, the last thing you need is, is something else to throw a kink uh, in the machine or, you know, when you're dealing with that. Uh, so luckily I didn't have that experience, um, but I was, I knew I needed to go see a counselor because I, I couldn't figure it out on my own. And I had this uh, preconceived notion that all we were going to talk about was my feelings, you know, and not forming a game plan to get better. Right. Yeah. Um, and that just wasn't my experience with a counselor. She, we sat down. We talked, and yeah, we talked about my feelings, but we talked about how to manage the feel those feelings better. We talked about, you know, what is it that I actually want in my future? Um, and it just was a different experience. And I found myself changing rapidly when I talked to her. So... I tell people that I used to have depression, I used to have anxiety, because I really don't suffer from depression and anxiety. And the turning point was the quick changes that I had with this specific counselor. And I'm so glad that I found her, excuse me. I'm so glad that I found her. And I'm so glad that she was the way that she was because I've talked to other people who've gone to other counselors where all they do is talk about their feelings and they talk about being depressed and how they feel depressed and how they get depressed. And when they get done, they're depressed. Yeah. <laughs> and so that just wasn't my experience with her. And it blew my mind that conversationally, I was able to make so, so much change. So our sessions were one hour. I had three of them with her. And at the end of the third one, she said, I don't know if you need to come back. Do you feel like you need to come back? And I said, I don't think I need to come back. I don't feel, I don't feel like I have depression anymore. I don't feel like I have anxiety anymore. Um, she said, well, my door's always open if you change your mind, but let's just leave it at that. Our next appointment is whenever you decide we need to have an appointment. I said, agreed. And this idea that she that we made such rapid change in conversation. She didn't prescribe any drugs. She didn't do um, you know, any 
I didn't get hooked up to any wire. She didn't zap me or <laughs> anything weird like that. Um, it was it was conversation, and three hours total. I went from being so depressed that I that I was thinking suicide was a viable option to not even on the radar of depression anymore in three hours. I didn't know how she did it. So this is a long way to answer your simple question, right? <laughs> so mostly I wanted to find out how she did that. And it didn't fit the norm of psychology. So I wasn't gonna go to school and, and, and dive into psychology. And so I was looking at, she did do one technique with me that um, she put a couple paddles in my hands and they vibrated back and forth, left, right, left, right. While I thought about, um, you know, some of the memories that I had that brought up depression and things like that. And it was this idea that we're going to spread, we're going to spread this pain, this memory to both sides of the brain. So this, this idea suggests that we can hold on to trauma. We can hold on to these feelings in just one part of our brain. And it may just be a little part, but because it's all focused there, it's extremely painful. So if you think of a nail, it's got a nice sharp end on it. It's very small, but it can penetrate. It can do a lot of damage. It can hurt really bad because it's focused in one area, one small area. So if we spread it out onto both parts of the brain, it's like melting that nail down into a, into a coin. And now it can't penetrate, it can't be as severe. It doesn't hurt as bad, it's still there. You can still think about it and, and even dwell on it, I guess, if you want. I don't dwell on it, but it's not gonna do as much damage. And it was that, it was that little exercise or whatever you wanna call it, technique that I looked at to try and figure out how she did that. How does that specific thing work? Um, <clears throat> and I was studying some something by Tony Robbins, and he mentioned neurolinguistic programming. And I said, "Light bulb, what's that?" And so I looked into neurolinguistics programming. And as I looked into it a little bit more, um, and I, I'll explain neurolinguistics programming essentially suggests that we can retrain our, our brain, we can rewire our neurology by the way that we speak. Okay, so neuro-linguistic programming, meaning the neurons are programmed by our linguistics or the way that we speak. And that can either be by the way that we speak vocally, by the way that, and I should say, say communicate, because it's not just verbal, speaking right, the way that we communicate, um, either with ourselves or with others. An example of that is, is I used to say, oh, I can't remember that. Now I say, it'll come to me in a minute. Because one is saying, well, that's shut down. We're not going to think of that. The other is saying, it'll come. I just have to give it time. And my memory has, has improved from just doing that. Um, that's <clears> awesome. <throat> I love that. Like I, I really feel like language has a huge part in in how we think and behave and the things that we believe and just changing like like I talk a lot with my clients about things that they think they have to do like I should be doing this I should be this kind of way like I'm like what if you changed it from sure should to I choose like, yeah. it changes everything everything yeah 100% I think along those same lines, I think we run around shooting ourselves yeah. all over the place, you know? <laughs> Shut all over and, your ideas. Yeah. And so we, we hate the should word around our house. <laughs> you know, we really yeah. hate that word. And I totally agree with that. I think that's a great option to change it from should to choose. Yeah. Now, now you have all the power, right? It's not, when we say should, it almost feels like somebody else is making us do this thing. Yeah. You're the but victim. if we're choosing it, then it's, then it's ours, right? Yeah. So I like that a lot. In looking into this neuro-linguistics programming, I found kind of the same exercise where they use visual cues. And when I say visual cues, I mean like 
rolling your eyes around your head, like looking up and around to the left, you know, circling your eyes clockwise while thinking of traumatic events. Um, and it's interesting that when I've tried this with just a few people, um, they say that you can see in the people's eyes, you can see where they're holding that trauma. And it's very interesting as they're going around their eyes clockwise, um, all of a sudden there's a little hiccup. It's all smooth. And then their eye will do a little blip, like in a corner or somewhere. <laughs> and that's where the trauma is. So the idea with that is like, as you're circling around with your eyes, you are activating different parts of your brain. And while you're thinking about that trauma, you're spreading it out just like this, like this counselor did with the, with the left brain, right brain and the paddles and, and my two hands. And so I went, holy cow, this is it. This is what I was looking for. Neuro-linguistic programming. Awesome. Because we represent things even visually as we do with speech, with feelings. Uh, I guess probably the best way to, to explain it is that the way that we remember things or even experience life, period, is through our five senses. So neuro-linguistic programming just says, well, let's tap into that and rewire it, like make it the way that we want to, okay? So neuro-linguistics programming then led me to hypnotherapy, which isn't the waving a watch back and forth in front of people and making them pass out and making them do whatever you want them to do, or saying, when you wake up, you're gonna lose 5,000 pounds and you're gonna be amazing. Um, that's not what it is. It's, it's about putting people into deep thought. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's about, and we go, it's about putting people into a trance. And I hate saying we're using the word trance because it's some people hear trance and they go, Oh, here's the quack. Like, <laughs> like people do it all the time. Like, for example, your kids, like if the TV's on and you're talking to your kids, are they hearing you? <laughs> no, they're in a trance from the TV. Right. And we'll do it too. I mean, people pull out their cell phones, boom, that's where they are. They're in a trance. They're super focused on the cell phone or they're in a good book. They're super focused on the book or they're driving. They're focused on driving. So this is what we're talking about. When we're talking about hypnotherapy. It's like, let's get super focused on what's actually going on, right? So hypnotherapy then led me to cognitive behavioral therapy, um, which is, it all like, when you study it all, it all fits into the same thing. So it all just kind of makes sense. And then I, I got certified in all those. I decided, well, why don't we just go ahead and do life coaching? And I got certified in that as well. Um, for, for just real quick, for those of you who don't know, cognitive behavioral therapy is um, the basis of what I use in my coaching. It's basically you have a circumstance, a circumstance that you can't always control, but you can control the thoughts about it. And then the thoughts create your feelings, which create your actions, which create your results. So your result is coming directly from that original thought um, and your thoughts are optional. So that's a quick breakdown of CBT. Absolutely. And that's one of the things I like about it is that, so when you explain it like that, that <clears throat> thoughts create feelings, some people get, get mad at that, right? Yeah, like, how dare they do. Say that. <laughs> But if we're gonna get if we're gonna get serious and we really want to to get better, if we really want to put an end to depression or anxiety or any negative thoughts or feelings that we have in our lives, we have to get real about the fact that feelings are the result of something. Okay. Mm -hmm. And and what is the cause of that? And when I decided to get real about it, because before I would say, I feel, uh, I feel depressed because my best friend died. If he wouldn't have died, I wouldn't have felt depressed or I felt depressed because I've, I've got MS or I'm depressed because I've got, uh, I didn't get enough hugs as a kid or whatever, you know, you can, you can name whatever it is. Any, we can find billions of reasons to be depressed, right? That's the way that it used to be. When I got real about it and really wanted to start breaking it down, I found out that it wasn't the event. It was the thoughts that I had about that event. Okay. And the thoughts that I would bring up that then triggered this emotion. Okay. 
Um, so that's, that's one of the reasons that I like CBT because it's so simplified down, but yeah. it's, but it's real. I mean, there's, there's an event, you have a thought, you have a feeling. And as many times as I've gone through my head on my emotions and my feelings, I found that to be hundred percent true that it doesn't skip from event to feeling that right there in the between there's a, there's a thought. Uh, but Brooke Castillo at the life coach school, she says, uh, the model is always working. <laughs> yeah, always. So, you know, I jumped on, I jumped on and did all of these things because I wanted to help myself. Right. Um, because I didn't like where I was. I wanted to, I wanted to get back pretty much to my old self. Um, but as I was going through it, I decided that I could be better than my old self. Right. Yeah. I could go beyond no. what I used to be and I could become more, I could become better. Um, and so I dove in, I got certified in all of them and uh, I feel pretty good about it. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I can say that. That's good. So, so how would you say that coaching is, is different than counseling? Because I mean, the way that I describe it is, um, Because where I specialize in women with depression, um, I tell them like, hey, if you are deep in a hole, you need a counselor to get you out of that hole. You need that counselor to bring you up to ground level. Um, That's the same way I explain like medication. Because I always, I felt like my medication takes me out of the hole and brings me to ground level. But if you want to do anything and make anything of your life, you need to start climbing up the mountain, right? And that's what coaching does. It gets you up that mountain. It makes you more of who you really are. Yeah. And, and if I can work on the same analogy, you know, being in that hole, um, everybody's got a hole in their life. Everybody's got a hole in their life. And it doesn't matter how deep it is or how vast it is. You know, everybody's got something in their life that represents the hole. Okay. A counselor, um, you know, would come and talk to you about your circumstance in the hole. (laughs) Tell me about this hole. Tell me how it feels. Um, And a doctor would come by and ask you the same thing. Well, how do you feel about being in the hole? Well, let's get you some prescriptions to help with those feelings. And I'm not, I'm not here to to downplay prescription drugs or anything because certainly um, the way that I explain it, you talk about getting out of the hole, having it take you out of the hole. um, I say, take the edge off, right? So the take, it takes the knife out a little bit. So you can think about something else other than how crappy you feel. Um, That being said, I'm not on any medications anymore uh, because I do feel like that this, all these different therapies and, and coaching and everything else have, have helped me through that. Um, but getting back to this whole analogy, um, you know, even some church leaders would show up and, and see you in the hole and say, I will pray for you while you're in that hole. And, um, you know, so and we love them these, for it. <laughs> yeah. And, and we love them for it. They're doing their best. And I, and again, I'm not trying to talk anybody down here. It's just that, everybody's doing their best. And we were talking about counselors and doctors and, and church leaders or, or parents or, or somebody that's not down there in the hole with you, you know, they're just doing their best and they're just going to do what they, what they do. What a coach does is say, Oh, you're down in the hole. Awesome. I'm coming down there and I'm coming down there because I know the way out. Let's go. Okay. That's awesome. And so that's, that's the way that, you know, that I would explain coaching is that someone gets down in the hole with you and says, all right, let's go for it. Let's get out of here. I'll show you. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Cause I mean, I, I like analogies. So I'm just like going crazy in my mind with this, like, Ooh, what else can we add to it? (laughs) (laughs) Sure. Like, like here, I've got these materials. You've got to build it yourself. Like I can't build it but you can, you can build, I've got these materials. You can build, I can tell you how I can show you how I can give you all the tools to build you a ladder to get you out of this. Yeah. And I, I think you're hitting on, on it there. One of the principles that, that I love 
is responsibility breeds empowerment. Yeah. And when we start taking more responsibility for the way that we are, the way that we feel, the way that we act, once we start taking more responsibility for that, we become more empowered to make changes for that. So for example, you know, I'm the way that I am because of my father. Okay. If I were to live that way, my life trajectory is dependent upon how my father lives. Okay. But if I say my father was a certain way and I'm responsible for how I respond to that. So I'm response able to that, responsible to that. Um, I become responsible for my life trajectory. My father had his life, but I'm responsible for how I act or react to that. Now I have, now I'm empowered. I'm the one that makes my decisions going forward, not my father making my decisions going forward. Right. Exactly. And so I think that's the most, um, the, that was the most helpful thing for me, um, was being encouraged to take more responsibility for my thoughts slash feelings slash actions. Um, and most of the time people want to just jump to the action part, right? Um, we, we want to take care of our, our actions first. So, um, let's say I am constantly late for work. I'm someone who's constantly late for work. Let's say that, um, what we want to do is just not be late to work. We just want to show up to work and, and be on time. Um, but there's thoughts and feelings that come before those actions, right? So let's jump back and take a little bit more responsibility for those thoughts and those feelings that lead to those actions. And I have found it to be true again in my life that once I start taking responsibility for those thoughts, then the feelings take care of themselves and the actions take care of themselves. Yeah. Uh, I mean, if somebody, other people would be your circumstance, right? Other people and their choices, that's a circumstance because you don't control that. But if they're responsible for the way you feel, there's nothing you can do about that. And you're trying to change them and you're trying to fix them and trying to make them change so you can feel better. And it's not yeah. going to work. It's so much easier to just be like, they got their lives and I get to choose how I'm going to think about this, that's going to determine how I feel. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things that, uh, you know, while I was going through my certifications, Kane Ramsey, he tells this story that I, that I think uh, is a pretty good analogy for what you're talking about right now, is he, he starts off by asking, uh, are you a maniac or a moron? And so that's a good attention grabber, right? Uh, so are you a maniac or are you a moron? So you're driving down the road, speed limit's posted, it's 30 miles an hour. You've got a guy in front of you driving 25 miles an hour. He's obviously, he's a moron because he's driving way too slow to be on the road. And so you're following too close and you're kind of driving, acting like you're going to pass him and you're checking to see if you can pass him and you're you know, you're going back and forth and you might even honk a couple of times to encourage him to go faster, but he's a moron. So he's not going to go faster. Okay. <laughs> and so as you're sitting here doing that, all of a sudden this guy comes up flying up behind you and now he's riding you and he's doing the same thing. He's swerving back and forth, back and forth. And you're watching the whole thing in your rear view mirror and he starts to honk at you and he goes, well, obviously this guy's a maniac, right? <laughs> So which one are you? <laughs> are you the moron or are you the maniac? And it all just depends on what you think, right? So it's a nice way to put it in perspective because you've got this maniac behind you, but you're being a maniac to the guy in front of you. But the guy in front of you is being a moron to you, but you're being a moron to the guy behind you. And so it's all about this perspective, right? Of who's in control of who I'm just in control of me and my thoughts. So if I don't think that that guy is a moron in front of me, it doesn't change the fact that he's driving slow in front of me, 
but I may not act like a maniac so much, you know? <laughs> yeah, for real. So I really feel like your journey is really super cool. <laughs> like I'm sure you didn't enjoy a lot of it, but we were talking uh, a couple of days ago and we were talking about how I have chemical depression and you asked sincerely, how do you know? And yeah. I had never thought about that before. And I was like, well, the doctor says, but how does the doctor know? I was like, because there are no tests. There's just these questionnaires, right? Mm -hmm. And of course it's chemical depression because it's the chemicals in our brain that are causing the vibration, which is exhibiting depression. Mm -hmm. And then you asked me, what if? What if you didn't? Just like this possibility. Yep. My two favorite questions. <laughs> yeah. So um, we got talking about that a little bit. And then <laughs> I'm just going to basically have you tell everyone this whole conversation again, because huh. you said, um, I like to show depression the door. Mm -hmm. Like when these negative thoughts come in, show depression the door. And that's a little bit different from what I have been practicing um, that I am like, okay, I have this chemical depression and things are, I'm just depressed today and things are going to look a little bit different. And to me, like that's compassion, but I also don't like it, <laughs> Right. you know? Um, so it really got me thinking like, what if I don't, and then my our amazing brains always want to prove themselves right. So my brain's going crazy thinking about all the possibilities, which is awesome in and of itself. But then how do you show depression the door? And how is that different from repressing negative feelings? Because I never want to repress a feeling because that just intensifies it, right? Right. So, so can you speak to that a bit? Absolutely. So I want to talk about repressing feelings first off. Um, I don't believe in repressing feelings either. I think that you just spend too much time and energy running from a storm that if you just went into and let pass, you'd feel so much better. I um, mean, even today, even today, uh, you know, I had to take a moment by myself in my bedroom and cry over uh, thinking about my friend uh, because I was sending his family a, a Christmas present. And so I'm not one that believes in repressing feelings. So talking about showing depression, the door though. Okay. I want to get, and I think when we were talked about this, I think I said that it was in the lines of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is inaccurate. Um, it's actually neuro-linguistic programming. So we're talking about representation. Okay. You had said in that conversation that when you feel depressed, you kind of go and correct me if I'm wrong here you kind of go, okay, depression is here, which is personifying uh, depression to an extent, mm -hmm. which, is, which is part of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is why I, I leaned that way. Personify sh name and shame, whatever's going on, right? So you said, oh, depression's here today. We're going to get comfortable. We're going to feel a little bit different today. I can't remember exactly all that you said, but it was something to that extent, right? Yeah. So you're welcoming yeah. depression in, you're letting it sit down, you're letting it be with you for the day. Or week, okay. you know, whatever. It's you know. <laughs> or, or week or whatever, whatever, yeah, whatever timeline, and I want you to pay attention to how I say this, whatever timeline you give it, okay? Yeah. yeah. So depression is here, I feel depressed, okay? I'm not saying don't fight against it. Don't say, I don't feel depressed. Feel it and know that it's here and feel it for however long you want to feel it. Okay. Neuro-linguistic programming says that we are representing, we are representing depression somehow, either through our, what we see here, Smell, taste, touch. So we're representing it some way. So if we're visually representing uh, depression, right? And 
this is what they look like and they're here at our house. Um, when I show depression in the door, when it first started off, um, he was he would be there and I would make depression look as ugly, as weak, as small as I possibly could because who's in charge of the visual representation of depression? We are. We are. So depression gets to look however we want. What I found is that when I first was thinking about depression, depression was big and scary and in my face and um, strong. And so I found out that I had to, I had to visually start representing uh, depression as small, as weak, as smelly even, and uh, distant. He didn't want to come near me because if he got too close, I might hit him and he wouldn't be able to take that. And so he would, he would be distant. He'd be far off. And so once I started doing that, um, it just changed how I felt about depression being there. All of a sudden, it just changed the power that depression had. Only because I changed the visual representation that I had in my mind. Okay. And then once I got to that point, um, it was state your business. Why are you here? And if it was just to wreck my day or just to remind you how sad you are about your friend dying. Yeah, you're right. I'm sad about my friend dying. Your mission is done. Was there anything else? And if it was, if he would tell untruths, like your kids don't need you. BS, my kids don't need me. I'm their dad <laughs> or I'm their mom. Like statistically speaking, like two parent households are across the board better off than single parent houses. Okay. And education and income and, and emotional and, and uh, mental strength, all of that stuff is better with two parents in the house. So you're lying now. All you're doing is lying. And I, you know, I'm, this conversation is happening in my head like I'm a crazy person. <laughs> it's bringing me, it's bringing me into sanity, right? We give so much power to this unknown, unformed, unreal thing that's totally represented in our own mind. Yeah. Okay. And again, I'm not trying to downplay the need for medication. I used to take medication. I believe in it. But this is what worked for me. So this is what I'm going to share. If it resonates, great. If not, that's fine too. So I changed how I rep visually represented him. Our conversations changed. I was the one in power now. He was the one that was just kind of like, well, I'm supposed to just kind of be here and make your life miserable. It's like, hey, if all you're going to do is lie to me, here's the door. And I would visually in my head see him leave. And yeah, like any, I don't know how many parties you've been to, but there's always that one person that kind of just sucks that sneaks back into the party and you have to keep kicking them out. That's why they put bouncers at the door of clubs because if people suck, they don't want them in there. And so you got to keep bouncing them out and eventually they just stop coming around, you know, lesson learned is they just stop coming around. And I'm not saying that it's a forever thing, um, but you get pretty good at bouncing. At least I did uh, at bouncing uh, depression. So what I talked about there and changing the visual representation of making them smaller, changing if they're bright or dark or, you know, just changing the way you <laughs> represent it changes the way that you feel about it. Now, going to you waking up in the morning and saying, this is going to suck. My kids don't need me. Uh, nobody's going to listen to my podcast. Um, you said that that voice was like, it was yours, but it was like 10 feet away. What would it sound like if it were a hundred feet away? And yeah. What if it sounded like it had just sucked a bunch of helium? <laughs> right. you're, you're laughing, but this is serious stuff. We're talking about depression. You're not supposed to laugh. I'm so you're supposed <laughs> to hate yourself. But that's what happens when we start changing the representations that we have in our mind about these things. The feelings that we have toward these representations change. Does that make sense? 
It's like the ridiculous spell in the in the third Harry Potter. I just go Harry with Potter. it. I just Harry Potter. I'm sorry. I'm that guy. Everybody goes around going, who hasn't read Harry Potter? Everybody's read Harry Potter. I'm that guy. So, you know, it's about, again, so when we're visually representing things, these are just thoughts that we're having, right? Whether we see something in our mind, hear something in our mind, it's, we're just thinking. That's all we're doing is we're just thinking. We're using our imagination and we're either using it to make ourselves more depressed or we're using it to build a better life or become positive or more empowered or whatever it is. And so if we've got this visual or, uh, or, or auditorial representation of depression, let's, let's play with it a little bit. The other thing that I would recommend and again, I think you just have to find out what works for you is instead of inviting it in for the day, invite it in for less time. Like, yeah. And I'm, I mean, that's just kind of the way that I've always been. All I want are just the important facts. Like, don't bother me with all, all of your history. Like, just, just give me the facts, right? <laughs> um, so when I represent, when I've got this representation of uh, depression, when he shows up, what's your business here? What, what, do you, what do you, what's the plan today? Well, I want to make you feel bad. Well, about what? What specifically do you want to make me feel bad about? And if he lists things that I'm sad about, yeah, I, I get sad about those things and I can feel sad about those. I don't need to be depressed about those. So now that you've made me feel sad about those, I guess we're done here or is there something else? And if he just shows up and he's just going to feed me lies, I don't have time for it. If you don't have facts for me, then out the door. And in my mind, he goes out the door. And if I find that I'm feeling depressed again, it's like, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't know we had unfinished business. Let's figure this out right here, right now, because I have bigger things in life. Yeah. I really like um, what you were saying about the vis visualization and just like trying out different ways of viewing it. Mm -hmm. um, because so like when I use CBT, um, and we're looking at the thought I, we said, su we suggest try on a new thought, like as if you were drawing, trying on a new pair of clothes, you mm -hmm. know, like just try it on, see how it fits, walk around in it for a little bit. Um, say so yeah, when you're like, just try a different voice, try mm -hmm. picturing him smaller, try picturing him further away, like, and, and how that changes things. Um, and also it kind of brings back the, the point that like, you are not your feelings. You are not your depression. I've always yeah. believed that you are not your depression, mm -hmm. but then it, that idea that you're not your depression really kind of conflicts with another belief that so many of us have that we are depressed, right. you know? So I think I kind of understand, like when you said, like, what if you don't? So I think if I were to create a new model here in the sea line, it wouldn't be depression. It would be doctor says I have depression based on this information. Mm -hmm. And then I get to choose what I think about that, what I do about that. And it can be, what if he's wrong? And it can be, so what? And it can be, I'm still in control. It could be anything. Yeah. And you know, that, that would be my follow-up question. You know, doctor says that I have, that I have it based on these questionnaires, my follow-up question is, you know, have doctors ever been wrong <laughs> have they, in the history of doctor? Have they ever been wrong? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think doubt is a powerful thing. We always use doubt for like negative things. Like we always doubt ourselves or we doubt what we can do or doubt what we can be, but it's like, why do we start doubting depression? Why do we give, why do we give depression? Why do we give anxiety so much like clout? Like they're right about everything that they're so powerful that they're so so great at everything that they do. And we doubt like actual professionals. We doubt like what we have done, what we are. Um, but yeah, I think that doubt can be super powerful. Yeah. I, 
just don't think that depression is as smart as it thinks it is. Yeah, because I mean, we have, uh, there's countless examples of people with physical ailments who doctors have, you know, given them a life sentence or said, you'll never walk again, or, Mm -hmm. and they're completely proven wrong. Exactly, exactly. And I think it's been kind of on my mind, this whole, this whole conversation that we've been having, but I think that another important point of this, and, and they talk about it, of course, in in life coaching especially, but they also say it in neuro-linguistic programming, hypnotherapy, cognitive behavioral therapy, you gotta have a goal that's bigger than you, right? So when I was, when I was depressed and on medication and still having uh, suicidal thoughts and things like that, my goal was to get back to who I was, okay? Before I snapped, before I lost it. the other part of that was, is that if I couldn't get back there, if I wasn't going to get back there, I wasn't going to live because it wasn't worth it to me. And I had to, I had to get really real about that. And when I say get really real about it, I had to picture my life getting back to the way that I was and how, uh, how happy I was and how able I was to do whatever it was that I wanted to do. I pictured how great that life was and it was compelling. I wanted to be there. And then on the other hand, I got to think about me taking my own life and where does that put my family and how miserable that looks, okay? My best friend just passed away. He left behind three kids and a widowed wife and that looked miserable to me. So I had this compelling future to look forward to that I wanted to get, but I also had this other image that I just totally wanted to get away from. And it was this motivation to do whatever it took to reach that goal. So I was being, I was, I was getting pulled toward the life that I used to have. I was getting repelled from the life that could potentially be without me. If we've got a compelling enough goal and it's vivid in our mind. So we're, we can visualize depression. We can hear depression. We can do all sorts of things like that. If we can do that, then we can visualize a very compelling, a very rich life ahead of us. And if we do that, then we will be willing to do whatever it takes to get that life. Yeah. Well, for sure, you're an inspiration to me because you, I mean, you've got MS and you've had depression and you've beat depression. And as far as I'm concerned, you're beating MS. And I know it's not curable, but you are, I mean, you do the treatments and I know they're not fun, but yeah. I mean, you're, you're running again, you yeah. know, and yeah, I'm running again, and uh, I will say that that it's it's been frustrating to run again. Um, so I used to just one of the half marathons that I ran, I decided to run that morning. I had no plan, I had no training for the marathon or that half marathon. I just woke up one morning and and uh, ran it. My training now, I just took eight weeks to learn how to run three miles again. Eight weeks. Usually you're running three miles in your first or second week. Um, but one, one thing that somebody said to me that was really inspiring is that one thing that, that has been learned can be learned again. So I've learned to run marathons before. I can relearn how to run marathons now. I just have to do it differently. That's all. And it's going to do, it's going to be slower, but in the end, I, that future of me crossing the finish line, that visual representation that I have. And the auditory, uh, the auditorial representation that I have, or oral, or however you say that, um, <laughs> representation that I have is compelling enough for me to take the time to do it. So generally, I train. I used to train 18 weeks for a marathon. I'm probably right now. My training is set to be about six months. Is how long I'm going to be training, so that I can know that I'm going to cross that finish line. Um, and it's not easy, but again, I've got this goal. I've made it compelling. 
I've played it in my mind. I've visualized it in my mind. I've heard all the sounds. I've felt all the feelings. And um, it's worth it to me to go for it. And the same thing was true for, for depression, for my anxiety, this visual, this vision that I had uh, of my life without it was so compelling that I was willing to do whatever it took to get there. And yeah, it sucked, but man, am I happy. <laughs> <laughs> so what, if there was just like one short message that you wanted people to make sure that they knew, like... What do you want people to understand the most about what you teach? Yeah, the most about what I teach, if I could, if I could summarize it up real nice and put a bow on it, is uh, believe in growth. And the reason that I say that is because if we believe in growth, that means that we have room to grow, which means that we can be a little bit nicer to ourselves today because however well or however bad we did it today, we believe in growth, which means tomorrow we could do it better. Or even if it took us a couple of days to do better, we can still do it better. So that means that we can give grace to ourselves. It also means that we can give grace to other people because we believe in growth, not just for ourselves, but for other people. So we can give grace to other people, even when they piss us off and we want to punch them. <laughs> We can give that grace to them because they are still growing. And not only can we have that grace, but it can empower us to know that we can still be better. We can still become more. And even if we feel like we're on top of the world right now, if we continue to believe in growth, we can do even better. And it's not about the finish line. You know, I think about when I talk about believing in growth, I think about I live in Washington. We've got just hundreds of thousands of forest land here. And so we'll go and hit these trails and I will see trees that grow straight up from the ground. I will see trees that grow sideways out of hills and then go up. I'll see short trees. I'll see tall trees. And the only trees that I see that aren't growing are dead. And so and I don't think that these shorter trees or these trees that are growing sideways before they go up, I don't think those other trees care about the taller trees. And I don't think they compare themselves to the smaller trees. They just believe in growing. And so all they do is pay attention to how do they get to the light. Nice. So believe awesome. in growth. Yeah, it's beautiful. I love it. Um, so... If people want to learn more about you, get a hold of you, learn about what you do, where can they reach you? Yeah, the, the easiest way right now is just get on Instagram. Um, I don't pay much attention to Facebook. Um, so the easiest way is to Instagram. I'm at uh, Luke Larson Live. And uh, you can follow me there or direct message me from there. All right. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for the time you took and for all of your amazing insight. Thank you for having me. It was fun. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You have a good one. All right. Take care, sis. If you have questions about this or any other episode on the podcast, or if you would like to set up a free consultation with me, please go to AngieLifeCoaching.com.